0: This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back. Episode eighteen. Megan here and Nick. We're back with Dr. Abrams and the newest member, Dr. Grudzinski. Very exciting. We're so excited for him. And then we have a couple new discussants here, and we'll let them introduce themselves.
2: Well, people. he's the newest oldest member. The newest oldest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly.
3: Hey guys, my name's Luke Detloff. I had been an M4 for about thirty-six hours. Been loving every hour of it so far. Grew up in central Illinois around Peoria, went to undergrad at U of I in champaign Urbana and, no. and I know. I am not a baby. <laughs> now I'm here at Rush. Oh, and I'm interested in medicine. I'm leaning cards at this point. So around Peoria, so like Pekin or like Washington? Same same conference. We played them in high school. I went to Morton. Morton, okay. You're familiar? Uh, uh. Very familiar. Shout out to the pumpkin capital of the
4: world though. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. My name is Eric Azua, I think I'm an M4, studying for Step 2 right now, so haven't started anything, but I'm from Denver, Colorado, went to school at the University of Colorado Boulder. Here interested in orthopedic surgery, so that'll be, fun. I start that service next week, so that'll be super fun.
1: Awesome. Listen, well, we have a great case for everyone today, Dr. Abram saw it in service I think a couple weeks ago, so excited to get started all right
5: should we start with the first one yeah let's do it. all right so our first aliquot of information here is our patient he's a 72 year old male presenting with several weeks of abdominal pain and distension symptoms are relatively constant though seem to be progressively worsening and has not had any exacerbating or alleviating factors so we usually like to start this out pretty broad so just basically, given this very limited inf- amount of information here, what comes to mind, what, what are you starting to think about when we have this, this mail here with pain and distension?
3: I guess the first thing that jumps into my head is some sort of obstruction somewhere. So it seems to be progressing pretty slowly. The, the distension kind of points to that for me. I'm wondering if it'd be like some sort of SBO picture or an alias or something that things aren't moving through the way they should be.
4: Yeah, for me, what kind of this stood out, like abdominal pain, some distension, wondering if the distension could be due to fluid, some ascites, maybe some abdominal pain, maybe, you know, like a little bit of a liver pathology, be constant going. on. So that was the first thing that
1: I think you guys are right on the money there. So you have pain and distension. And I feel like it's always helpful to not anchor on one, but maybe like focus a little bit more towards one. And I think that The differential for abdominal pain is huge. There's a ton of organs in there. It could be the lungs. It could be anything in the GI tract. If it's a female, you could also worry about, like, a lot of GU pathology. Even men, like, torsion sometimes presents abdominal pain. But focusing on the distension, which you guys both kind of alluded to, a really good way to start because the differential for that, or at least, like, the framework for thinking about it, is a little, I don't know, I guess, like, more structured in my mind. So, kind of the one, or one way that I like to, like, break it up is, like, is it solid? Is it liquid? Is it gas? Or is it just like something else? I think that's a good way to start. So solid-wise, like, is this just out of post tissue? Like... COVID time, you know, getting out as much, eating a little bit more, like that could, you know, that could be something that's going on. If this is a woman, is it pregnancy? Always something you don't want to miss. And then like all the organs in there is something like, is it the liver? Is it the spleen? Is there some other like malignancy that's kind of taking up space? Liquid, you brought up the ascites, which is really good. And then you brought up like ileus or obstruction. So that's more of like a gas and that can cause some sort of distension. And then for other things, like, is there some sort of weakness in the abdominal wall and you're getting like of something through there. So, just kind of a good framework to break it down.
5: And yeah, do you, you guys have like any thoughts in terms of further questions you'd want to ask? I'm just, just with what we know now to kind of help guide some of the, the things that Megan was, was talking about. Yeah, to follow my obstruction train of thought know when the last time they pooped everything
3: us, everything's yeah, built.
5: definitely. <laughs>
3: Are they having bowel movements? Any change to their the quality of their stool? In the first place definitely, go. yeah.
4: Yeah. Go through my OPQRST <laughs> there we go. you know, kind of things. So, you know, was when did it start? Was there any inciting events that, you know, maybe started the abdominal pain distension? Um, really says there's no exacerbating or alleviating factors, you know, see if this abdominal pain radiates anywhere, what the abdominal pain kind of feels like. Some of these questions.
1: Yes. I have nothing to add. You guys are great with all of that. Okay, so we'll move on to the second aliquot. So review systems-wise, denies any hematemesis, melana, confusion, skin changes, recent illness, new medications, including over-the-counter medications. For his past medical history, alcohol use disorder. Started drinking around age 20, stopped about two months ago. Unable to really quantify exactly how much, but just says a lot of whiskey and beer. Other medical problems are hypertension and type 2 diabetes. Um, For his meds, just on metformin and lisinopril. Past surgical history, he had an appy two years ago, and then social history, alcohol use is above, and then no tobacco or is it substance use. So you guys kind of want to tackle what you're thinking with um, the new information that you have here?
4: Yeah, well, you know, his history of alcohol use disorder obviously can, you know, a chronic issue that could lead to kind of the ascites that I was thinking about earlier. So that's kind of, you know, a temporal thing. But I don't want to be just like, automatically default to that. And so, you know, the appendectomy two years ago also, you know, was, you know, talking about some, you know, some obstruction could definitely, you know, put some, put that into perspective, some fibrous tissue scarring that can get things
2: all clogged up.
3: Yeah. With this new info, definitely ascites jumped on my differential quite a bit, but, um, also with the abdominal pain and the alcohol use I'm thinking of the pancreas thing, but as well. Also, could be like maybe kidney stones, something like that. Like there's a few other things that this brings into play.
1: All right. And then kind of moving forward, anything that you'd want to be like looking for on exam? We'll get to like more data with labs and stuff going forward. But yeah, I guess just mostly with the exam, what would you be looking for to kind of either prove or disprove hypotheses? hypothesis?
3: mean, a lot of cirrhotic stigmata, spider angiomas, jaundice, drus, the other ones, but like hypogonadism, yeah, kind of yeah.
4: You know, for me, I just want to make sure like nothing like is super acutely wrong. And so looking for any signs of peritonitis, you know, looking to see if there's any rebound tenderness or guarding on palpation, just to see where exactly the tenderness to palpation is. You know, is it something more just diffuse, isolated to right upper quadrants, epigastric pain,
2: even maybe bilateral lower quadrants and anything like that. I so like them. The medicine person and the surgeon getting different perspectives on this case.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. All right, should we move on to the next one? Anything to add, Nick?
5: No, I think they pretty much covered it. He sounds sounds good. good. All right, so moving on. So our next aliquot includes a little physical exam here. So the vitals, the blood pressure 129 over 78, heart rate 93, temperature 98.8. Respiratory rate 18. Height was 5 foot 3. Weight 156 pounds. Constitutionally, the patient was awake and alert, cooperative, no apparent distress, and appeared stated. The eyes, pupils, equal round, reactive to light. On. Sclera was non-acteric. Normocephalic, atraumatic. Mucous membranes were moist. The neck exam was unremarkable. There was no palpable lymphadenopathy. The lungs were clear were clear, no wheezing or crackles. Cardiac exam had a regular rate and rhythm with no murmurs, normal S1 and S2. The abdomen was distended. It was non-tender to palpation. However, there was a positive fluid wave, but no uh, masses were palpated. In, uh, for musculoskeletal, there was no lower extremity edema. Neurologic exam was normal. Um, notably, there was no asterixis. And the skin, there was no pulmonary erythema and no um, spider angioma. So definitely some, some pertinent positives and pertinent negatives here in the physical exam. We like to say, you know, sometimes it's super helpful and sometimes it's really frustrating and not helpful. So yeah, does, does anything here stand out to you in particular? Does, does anything, you know, is there any information that we're lacking here? Or... So yeah, we can take any of you guys for a shot of that. As I say, there's a lot of pertinent negatives
4: that are here right now. Really, the only thing I saw that really stuck out in my mind was the fluid wave, which, you know, we kind of know, but it is, you know, kind of better to tell that this is more of, you know, a fluid etiology rather than one of the gas or solid masses that you mentioned earlier, Megan. So that, you know, can put us, uh, you know, in a certain direction, but man, I think
3: I was, you know, hoping for some spider energy. (laughs) Yeah, one of the things I like about what Eric did last time was trying to figure out if there's like an acute issue that we need to really intervene on urgently and I'm reassured by the vitals. Um, I mean, we couldn't rule out SBP with no, without like further imaging and stuff, but the fact that they're febrile makes me feel a lot better. Yeah, again, the distension, the fluid waves, pretty much all that we have to go off of here, but I think we can devise some next steps based on that.
1: What are your thoughts, you know, with the societies, but without any of like the stigmata that you think of for cirrhosis? How do you guys kind of piece those things together?
3: Yeah. I mean, I want to get some fluid and look at it and yeah. <laughs> kind of see what that can
5: tell me.
1: Give me more information. Yeah. more
5: Yeah. I guess what kinds of things would you be looking for getting some fluid or like what questions do you think that that would kind of help you answer or kind of narrow things down?
3: Yeah. Well, as far as the etiology of the ascites, I mean, I'd want to measure a SAG to figure out if portal, portal hypertension is at the root of this, if there's like Blendency or something that could be going on that would increase the permeability and kind of let the, the fluid kind of extravasate out that way. And so I think that'd be a helpful thing to, to look at. Also, like cytology, brain staying culture.
1: So, does this rule out cirrhosis for you, or do you think it just makes it less likely? Where does it kind of put it on your different?
4: You know, I think you know, it's still something we could consider, but for me, it's a little lower now. You know, I loved Luke brought up the, the sag okay. measurement speaking about my like, portal hypertension I'm kind of reassured because you know there's I at least right now we would probably have to do some more digging on the exam like EGD to see if you no know, there's the esophageal varices are uh, the peri umbilical what are the caput's men it is called so I'm kind of reassured by that but yeah there might be something else mysterious going on Yeah, uh, the other thing is like you know if this were you know a female maybe of you know kind of lesser age the other thing i would be thinking of is like a follicular rupture or something obviously not in the situation but it's like what are some of these insidious causes of you know just fluid in your abdomen
1: Yeah, that's a really good thought um just gonna throw a little ebm in here to spice things up a little bit but i think that it's really important especially with a lot of the physical exam findings just to know exactly like how helpful they are in ruling in versus ruling out a lot of the pathology. So I learned that in terms of something like a negative likely ratio, negative likelihood ratio for cirrhosis, there's basically nothing that has a negative likelihood ratio greater than. So basically like no pertinent negatives can say for sure this is not cirrhosis, yeah. which was interesting. On the other hand, there are a lot of things that do have a pretty high positive likelihood ratio. Caput medusae is like a 9.5, this is pretty high, 6.6, um, which we see here. And then testicular atrophy and spider angiomata or two others that are pretty Hi. some shout out to symptoms to diagnosis but I think that it's definitely helpful because we learn all these ex- exam findings and that's kind of like the first step in knowing what they are and what they're associated with but then moving forward and being like okay I don't see these how does this kind of you know affect my decision makings
5: I think I think that just to like kind of jump off that I think it's super relevant because sometimes physical exam is so overwhelming with like all the things that you can like look for right so just knowing how useful a particular exam finding is, especially when you're crunched for time or, or you just really kind of need that clue. So just like knowing these likelihood ratios, like I know that one of my rotations, someone told me that like JVD is extremely, extremely specific for some kind of, of cardiac or heart failure. Right. But like, there's so many, you know, lower extremity edema is also a sign of heart failure. And, and there's a lot of, you know, crackles, but those are, you know, less specific. So maybe you look, Knowing which exam findings are more specific to diseases is like super helpful. So sometimes I guess the EVM stuff can be like overwhelming, but then when it really can like help you knowing that data,
0: it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So I think that
5: it's like definitely relevant to, to know
0: some of those. I'd like, I've been doing a lot of thinking about some clinical reasoning principles and one was like plausibility and probability. And I think this kind of explains it really well. And I feel like it's a pitfall for a lot of us because. Even after hearing this, like hearing the physical exam, seeing there's no stigmatic cirrhosis, it's going down on my differential. But then Megan's telling me that the negative likelihood ratio is pretty much one for all these negative findings. So it really shouldn't change me prioritizing cirrhosis. And then thinking about probability, most probably the most likely cause of ascites is related to cirrhosis. So it probably should be my prioritized diagnosis. Which is interesting,
1: especially for someone that has kind of this alcohol
0: uh, definitely that that also that
2: information from the story adding, although you do have to think about other causes of whatever maybe because we don't really don't know what this is I mean we use words, fluid wave. I, I don't know what that means. It means that somebody shook somebody's belly and it seemed to move a certain way. <laughs> Maybe this is just a really full bladder. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, but there are other, you know, listen, people with heart failure get bellies full of fluid. There's other things that, that fill you up with fluid besides, besides liver failure, and, which you mentioned already. So, I mean, so that, that is right. And it goes back a little bit to what, what Kevin was just talking about this this plausibility probability thing. The other piece of it is, you know, my own feeling is yes, we assign probabilities to things, but you always have to think about what happens if you're wrong. Right. So we anchor on the thing we think is most right, but I always say, Okay, if I'm wrong, what's the second choice? What's the yeah. third choice? Mm-hmm.
1: Alright, so I know you guys want some fluid. Any other labs imaging that you would like?
2: Well, you can
4: never go wrong with uh, CBC, CMP. When I think of some sort of hepatic failure, I want to see, you know, is there any signs of like coagulopathy? So PT, IR, PTT, jam. Would
3: you
1: image? I
3: mean, I would do an ultrasound guide, paracentesis, put the ultrasound probe on there and if there's C, that you can take I mean I don't I don't think at this point I feel that, that kind of is sufficient. agree with all the labs Eric said so definitely want to see those liver enzymes Evaluate liver function like albumin protein except that one of the coags that you mentioned
1: well I think we have most if not all of those things for you all right BMP wise so we have a sodium can you guys see that okay. Okay. sodium 138 potassium 3.7 chloride 102 bicarb 27 BUN 9 Creatinine 0.73, glucose 178, total protein of 7.1 with an albumin of 3, calcium 8.7, T billy is 0.3, LFOS 133, AST and ALT 17 and 11, respectively. And then for the CBC, we got a white blood cell count of 7.7, red blood cell count of 4.8, hemoglobin of 12, hematocrit of (laughs) 37.1. platelet count of 362 and then a PTINR of 1.08. And then they did get some imaging. And so they got a CT abdomen pelvis with contrast, which showed a cirrhotic liver morphology with supply of portal hypertension, including gastroesplenic barreses and large volume abdo- pelvic ascites, a loculated cystic lesion measuring up to 13.6 centimeters in the left lower quadrant and extending into the pelvis. This lesion abuts both the sigmoid colon and the posterior aspect of the urinary bladder. Uncomplicated colonic diverticulosis and cholelithiasis. So, a lot going on here. I'd say let's start with the labs and let's start with the let's start with the BMP first because if we just throw it all out there, I think things are going to get messy. So, <laughs> BMP. Yes, what are your guys's thoughts?
5: Is this what you expected?
3: <laughs> I was hoping for some more um, liver enzyme abnormalities, <laughs> but <laughs> we can work with this. I mean, the elevated alphas. There's some sort of cholestatic picture going on here, but we can't rule out bone pathology either low albumin maybe the liver synthetic function right in a little bit but the INR is normal and so that kind of goes against that
2: pretty normal
4: yeah pretty normal you know the the, the bilirubin is normal which is also you know, kind of like you know somewhat reassuring and then we said that the calcium was a little low at 8.7 immediately when I'm on my clinical vignettes and I think of abdominal pain, low calcium, I'm like, oh, pancreatitis. Obviously, you know, so much more <laughs> going on in this case, but I'm still like, you know,
3: what's going on with the calcium right now? But yeah, other than that. And then I might butcher this off the top of my head, but trying to adjust that calcium for the albumin. Ah, uh, so, uh, there we go. <laughs> so what is it for every point it is below four, the albumin you have to add 0.2? We need to point up. <laughs> Went something. <laughs> uh, step out of the patient's room at this point. So yeah,
1: very good point with adjusting the calcium for albumin. And assume this is not an adjusted one. All right. And then CBC-wise, I know you guys talked about the PT, uh, PTIMR already, but CBC-wise, what do you think?
4: Hemoglobin is a little low, but it's not like low to the point where I'm concerned about you know, like transfusions or that I'm worried that this person has esophageal varices that are hemorrhaging. Yeah, I, I usually see like a 12 hemoglobin and I'm just, ah, eh, that's not too bad.
3: But <laughs> I guess that's in a, like a biased hospital standpoint. So I'm not super impressed with it. No, I agree with Eric. I think with the physical exam, them being not peritonitic and then the white blood cell count infections moving lower on my differential now. And so like Eric said, that's something we definitely needed to be keeping an eye out for when um, this patient first presented, so that's about all I took from it.
1: And platelet wise, what do you guys think about that? You know you're talking about liver disease a little bit. Anything you're looking for, the platelets, or do we not care about the platelets?
3: Well, I mean off the top of my head, I know platelets can be an acute phase reactant, so maybe no acute inflammation or things like that going on. says no liver right? Everything since st- <laughs> yes, yeah, so maybe i speaking towards the liver synthetic fun- function being intact and then I mean the liver and spleen are very like interrelated there's maybe no splenic sequestration or anything happening here with with, with abdominal distension. maybe that's something you could be considering and so since the platelets are normal maybe that moves lower on the differential but it wasn't too high on mine to begin
4: with. Yeah I know exactly what you said kind of about the splenic like sequestration that was kind of like my big thing there you know if we're looking for signs of bleeding with a normal platelet count but this person's like BUN super high or something because of you know some like hepatic encephalopathy picture that could be accounted for but no everything like everything looks good in terms of platelets in this case
1: right so now we have the CT that shows the cirrhotic liver morphology with like the sequelae of portal hypertension with these varices and the ascites so, just kind of taking a step back because, you know, first thing this guy comes in with distension, we're like, all right, maybe ascites is the cirrhosis. We're not sure. We got the exam, like, no real sequela or stigmata of it, but still we can't say for sure. We got these labs, which didn't sound like they were making you think of cirrhosis. But now, what do you guys make of this CT? How does that kind of fit into to everything else that you're thinking?
0: How does this make any sense?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically are you as confused as probably everyone else was when they saw them?
4: Yeah. You know, it, it's uh if- doesn't make sense, you know. Starting from, uh, starting from the you know the, the bottom, if I'm gonna you know actually just like work up in, you know from simplest first. So yeah. this person has colathiasis. <laughs> there are some stones in the gallbladder, but you know you know the T billy's not elevated or anything like that. AST, ALT, those are the 17 and 11 respectively. Probably the lowest I've seen it. So you know I'm not. worried about the obstruction, which is good. Uncomplicated colonic diverticulosis. I'm glad it says the word uncomplicated in there. You know, kind of... Thank you, radiology. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm less so concerned about, like, an acute diverticulosis or... Or diverticulitis, excuse me. And, like, worrying about, you know, any
3: abscesses or anything.
4: You know, there's two more that I'm going to let Luke hit.
3: <laughs> i like, I appreciate you taking the... So... I mean, yeah, starting from the top, the cirrhotic liver doesn't make a ton of sense with not much evidence of it other than the ascites and the normal liver enzymes. I don't quite know what to make that at this point. Um, but with those varices, I want to be mindful of a bleed. And um, this, this cystic lesion really interesting. 13.6 centimeters is pretty large. It's loculated, so it seems like it's getting kind of complex and butting up against the, the GI tracts. There could be some like mass effect stuff playing into this here, if, like a like a functional constipation type thing. And so, yeah, it's just... Definitely interesting, I don't know if I expected that.
4: Yeah, you know, I feel like, you know, you have some unexpected mass, that itself can be a little leaky. I don't exactly yeah. know what it is right now, but I feel like when I hear masses, like, there'd be a little leakage there, so maybe that's something you could look into.
3: Definitely, it's thick enough, it's holding enough about you So know, to- leak, yeah. Also, shout out to Eric for getting the ascites just right off the bat when the patient walked through the door. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's ready for step two. Yeah,
1: I think you guys are doing awesome. I mean, I think everyone in this situation where they see this CT finding and then trying to kind of piece it together with, like, the labs and the exam, it definitely is confusing. Because we had the exam that, like, really didn't show the cirrhosis, And then we have these labs, which, like, Cirrhosis in and of itself, like frequently is diagnosed clinically. I think gold standard wise, you do have to biopsy it. But a lot of times they like can use all these kind of calculations, plug in certain values to see, you know, how likely it is that this patient has cirrhosis and like a lot of those values like thrombocytopenia, like especially a value less than 110 that has a like positive likelihood ratio of like 9.8 and low albumin um, less than 3.5 also has a pretty high likelihood ratio. This prolonged INR also. So we have the low albumin, the otherwise like the prolonged INR, the thrombocytopenia, we don't really see those. So both the imaging or both the exam and the labs are pointing away from cirrhosis, like you guys said. So it definitely becomes confusing when you see something like this on imaging. So I guess the question then becomes, all right, well, how reliably can you diagnose cirrhosis with this CT scan? Is this something that looks like cirrhosis or isn't cirrhosis? And then like, do we need to kind of do more studies to follow up and see, you know, exactly why the liver looks like this. So it's definitely a good place to take a step back and be like, we got a lot of pieces of the puzzle here that like don't seem to be perfectly fitting together. And then, you know, kind of looking at the tests that you've ordered, seeing how helpful they are in distinguishing one thing from another and moving forward from there.
2: I think the big question you guys have to think about is whether you believe in Occam's race or the here. <laughs> yeah. and that is... Yeah. particularly with the C T scan, and I'll skip three and four right now, <laughs> but are one and two related or are one and two separate? And and then I can swing it back to the labs and say, is is this related or is this a incidental finding? So I don't know. I don't know. Whatever your answer is <laughs> is fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean
3: it's definitely satisfying when you can tie things together and put a nice bow on it and like everything's it's just a domino effect and everything affects the other. But I mean, I've I've seen patients with massive liver cysts that were just incidental findings that they had had for a long time that, yep, yeah, they didn't even know about and they definitely weren't cirrhotic or anything. And so I think I'm more inclined initially to have it be separate even though we don't have this like this like typical cirrhotic stigmata like the patient is an alcohol user and things like that and there are pieces that still do fit with the cirrhosis and so I mean I don't want to anchor on it too much but I'm more leaning towards them being
0: separate When do you give up on cirrhosis? When do you? (laughs) That's a good question you know, I'll never give up.
5: <laughs> but, you know, you know,
4: kind of like going off what Luke says, like, you know, putting them as two separate like, etiologies, I think that's a great frame of thought moving forward, just to make sure you're not missing anything, like you were saying earlier, Dr. Abrams. And then if there are parts where they overlap, I mean, that's very nice, but, you know, it could as not very well be incidental. Maybe this person knows they have a massive cystic lesion. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well I think that's a good point. I feel like if there's anywhere you're gonna find like an incidental finding, it's probably on a CT scan of like the abdomen pelvis, because there's always a lot going on in there. So you guys wanted some fluid, we have that for you. We'll move on to the next aliquot. So our next aliquot,
5: I guess all roads lead to paracentesis here. So the patient underwent IR paracentesis with 400 cc's of extremely thick gelatinous fluid aspirated from the left lower quadrant loculated collection. 40 cc's of similar fluid was aspirated from the right lower quadrant, a free perineal collection. There was extreme acellularity in the cytology report, and thus no conclusive interpretation could be drawn. I know, it's great, isn't it? So the color of the fluid is slightly xandochromic, and the clarity was cloudy. There was slight slight gross automated white blood cell was 400, red blood cell 1,078. Seg fluid was 22, lymphocyte fluid 14, mononuclear cells in the fluid 64, and miscellaneous 100. The albumin level of the fluid was 2, 2.0, amylase 22, glucose 102, and lipase pace a less than 4 and then they also did a ca199 level which is 54 with normal being anything less than 35 and they did a ca level as well which was 24.4 and normal being anything um less than 5 so mm-hmm. A lot, a lot to go off of here. Definitely some pertinent information. Luke, I know you were talking about the SAG. and You were talking about that. I was talking about it. What was the series? So yeah. it was three, it was three, three. and this okay. is two. So three minus
2: two.
5: <laughs> I to that from you. But so yeah, our SAG is one. We have all this other information as well in terms of the. So yeah, with all that information, and then also the CA nineteen nine CA level as well. Those slightly bumped. Lots to go off of here. How does this change your thinking, or in kind of what direction you go?
4: Yeah, a lot to kind of uh, digest here, you know, because I'm kind of like a visual, you know, person that's wanting to go into a surgical field. You know, I think I get a lot of information based off just like, what this material looks like when we're aspirating, you know, a thick gelatinous fluid, very different than what we would consider for like our, like ascites fluid, which is, you know, that straw colored, very, you know, liquidy, non-viscous. So that's interesting. And we have much more fluid coming out of that loculated collection than we do just from, you know, the peritoneal cavity right there. So it's good that we kind of did, you know, stick a needle in that thing, you know, (laughs) kind of brings together like, hey, there's some fluid in the abdomen, but also there's this big leaky, you know, (laughs) cystic mass going on over here. So I think that would definitely bring my attention a little bit more towards this mass that's happening. Acellularity on cytology, thus no conclusive interpretation can be drawn, was probably my favorite thing I've heard so far about this case. Because when I heard acellularity on cytology, I was like, I really hope they tell me what that means and that did not happen. But, you know, based on that, you know, I don't, you know, there's probably a good sign there's no, like, you know, lymphocytes, no, you know, macrophages. What's the big one that I'm looking for? Neutrophils uh, in there for, yeah, an acute, like,
3: infection. Yeah. Yeah, I think Eric hit the nail on the head. Just, just looking, reading the description of the thick gelatin, one I'm leaning away towards, yeah, like the, the normal ascites that we would get with portal hypertension, even without calculating a SAG, which the SAG would support that, right? It's one, so less than 1.1. It's, <laughs> Pointing away towards portal <laughs> hypertension. And yeah, less than 250 neutrophils, so that's good as well. Yeah, one of the things that popped into my head while I was reading this is like a like a Kyla societies, which I know you can see in the case of the lymphoma, but I would be guessing that we would see lymphocytes in the fluid if that were the case. That was in the large group of random facts that I memorized for <laughs> step one, and for no reason it's still in there. <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, with the acellularity in the cytology report, I was like, maybe there's a malignancy or something going on that's causing it. Then we have these positive c 19
0: and positive CEA, so. How do some of the enzyme findings help your differential? You know, I'm looking at the the lipase, like, in particular, less than four.
4: I don't exactly know what that means, you know, in this very isolated kind of mass-like structure, but maybe it means it's a little less towards kind of like a pancreatic, you know, mass, pseudocyst, anything along that lines, which, you know, with a history of chronic alcoholism alcohol use disorder you might have to think about the glucose isn't extremely low the amylase and the lipase kind of go together in that regard yeah and the fact that they're not screaming super high to me
0: yeah. now, now throw on some of the tumor markers how does that layer on
3: yeah but i know the ca 1999 specific, I believe it's just, it's released from peritoneal cells in the stretch of some kind, and so it could be a tumor that's growing there, or it could be a lot of other things that's causing that, and so I, I think that kind of fits in just like the general distension that we've seen so far, but again, you can see that in malignancy, so maybe something that I'm still considering. And CEA, is that the pancreatic cancer one? Or, I think, isn't it ca 19 is pancreatic and CEA is more of like- Did a colon- I get those lips? Okay, yeah.
4: Yeah, but it, exactly to what you said, you know, I, they don't seem to be remarkably high for me. Maybe the CEA of 24.4 a little bit, if it's almost less than five. But like you said, they're so nonspecific that, mm-hmm. you know, I would need much more than just those values to remotely diagnose anything. I
0: love you're highlighting the nonspecificity of them and noting them, keeping them in mind, but not giving them Oh, this value came back positive. Let's shoot our
2: attention that way. So it's very so, good. So I do have to go back to Occam's razor to <laughs> and, and see if you guys what you guys think now.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I might be on board now.
2: <laughs> They're
3: starting to seem a little bit more related to me with the Yeah, with the description of the the aesthetic fluid yeah. being consistent with what I would imagine would be in a complex cyst.
4: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's still, you know, good to move forward and kind of like Consider them maybe as slightly different etiologies, right? Because we still have cirrhosis for some, or uh, not cirrhosis, right? But the liver looks scarred. And that at this point, right, you know, could be our incidental finding. We were like, oh, maybe the cystic mass is incidental. And it's funny how that kind of just shifts now. You're like, yeah, whatever. His liver's kind of scarred, but what's this mass? But I think yeah, we should probably still consider them, you know, both at this point. But my
5: attention does travel a little bit more towards the, the stick of heat. Thanks. Awesome. So <laughs> I guess before we move on, now is probably a good time to just review the SAG. I know we, we talked about it, but for me as a third year medical student and now still a fourth year medical student, <laughs> it's kind of a confusing topic sometimes. So just for our listeners, it's essentially, we're taking the, the serum albumin level, um, and the albumin level in the, uh, peritoneal fluid, and we're taking so serum albumin minus peritoneal fluid albumin and that's going to give us a number which we're going to ca- which we're going to call our sag or our serum albumin ascites gradient and so we can use this number in order to kind of differentiate the cause of um, the peritoneal fluid or ascites so generally speaking the SAG, a sag of greater than 1.1 is suggestive of some something due to portal hypertension and i always kind of met, at least for me i always associated portal hypertension and cirrhosis is kind of the same thing but cirrhosis is only one cause of portal hypertension so you can think of things that are kind of upstream of the liver or I guess closer to the heart post-sinusoidal so this is like heart failure or like valve disease um, Bud Chiari syndrome where you get uh, clots that are post-sinusoidal then you can think of something that's intrahepatic, in our case, cirrhosis being one of them, but portal fibrosis are a ton of different, like intrahepatic liver pathologies, and then prehepatic as well. So like a portal vein thrombosis or some kind of mass effect and causing portal hypertension. So those are usually when it's greater than 1.1 and then less than 1.1, we're thinking of something that's not due to portal hypertension. So Megan, if you you wanted to maybe talk about some of those causes as well, since I feel like I'm talking a lot, but you're doing great. Yeah, The uh, but yeah, I, I, I always thought that this was kind of when you have a lab value that can help different differential diagnosis, it helps simplify things when things can be really, so that's why I like this.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with everything you said, and I think that when everyone gets the sag back, they're just kind of hoping it's going to be greater than 1.1, 1. 1. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it easy, it's for hypertension, and it's most likely cirrhosis, so now we're kind of in that weird category where it's less than 1.1. 1. 1. Although it is pretty borderline so I'm not sure like kind of how definitively you can rule in or rule out portal hypertension based on that but for the sake of discussion we're talking about things that are less than 1.1 and so you guys talked about cancer so malignancy is a big one and I kind of like to think just like about anything that's going to like induce inflammation because if it's less than 1.1 it means that the acidic fluid's a lot more similar to the serum fluid than it would be in portal hypertension. So anything that's going to cause inflammation and like make those capillaries and leaky is just kind of like a good framework to think about it. So infection always, autoimmune disease, TB can do literally everything. So that's something, yeah, the autoimmune conditions. An interesting one is nephrotic syndrome, um, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I feel like if you really think about it, because that's like a low albumin state, which you think would just cause more of like the fluid to leak out without the albumin. But I think the thought process is that the album is just kind of like so low at baseline with that that you see kind of like this weird paradoxic low sag. But yeah, those are kind of like the big buckets. And then I think this is, I don't know, like, I feel like so much of medicine is kind of getting to this point where you're like, all right, I have something that I'm not super familiar with. Like, let me do a search. Let me see what I can kind of come up with that has like a low sag ascites. And then which of these things really fit with my patients. I think you guys did a great job, especially just like from the start talking about the fact that this is like gelatinous fluid. Like I remember on my county rotation for IM, we were doing a lot of, you know, changing like the peritoneal um, catheter buckets. And so, yeah, I saw a lot of, a lot of ascites fluid and none of it looked gelatinous. So, you know, we don't have to be like GI experts here, but just knowing that that finding is pretty abnormal. And so we're probably not dealing with something that we see every day. I think you guys are doing great. So we will move on to the next algorithm. So, a colonoscopy was performed and was normal. Hepatology recommended a transjugular liver biopsy. The pathology revealed portal and periportal fibrosis not concerning for cirrhosis. Um, The patient underwent peritoneal biopsy with removal of 4.5 liters of mucinous ascites. Pathology revealed extravasated acellular mucin but had no evidence for malignancy. So, I guess we can start from the top. Normal colonoscopy were you guys worried about? I know we had those tumor markers. How worried were you for some sort of like colonic pathology?
3: Well, I was hoping you were going to ask, what do you want to do next? Uh, colonoscopy written down, but, not, <laughs> but now you stole my thunder and I don't know what to do with this normal colon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you can still say, what were you hoping to find? On the well, I mean, yeah,
3: when there's a liver mass, I'm concerned. It's the most common place for mets from the colon to um, end up. So always something I'm considering primary colon cancer when dealing with liver. So yeah. the normal colonoscopy will, will lower that for me.
5: Yeah, that'd be something to put a bow tie on it kind of you have the mass and then you have it's yeah. causing you know some kind of cirrhosis or liver pathology yeah.
4: absolutely cea being a little elevated yeah. good then Transjugular liver biopsy portal and periportal fibrosis not concerning for cirrhosis which is interesting so i was right the fact that this person might just have a scarred liver <laughs> for some weird reason <laughs> but not cirrhosis which is interesting i need to pull out the good old textbook to say what other causes give you like an Micronodular liver open <laughs> air buds. Now we're really putting cirrhosis much lower on my differential. I'm going to circle back. You or- <laughs>
1: ready to retire? I,
4: th- I think that's uh, it's pretty low at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the direct quote was, I'll never give up on
1: cirrhosis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they didn't sample <laughs>
1: <laughs> Take more liver. All right, and then the peritoneal biopsy. What do you think about that?
3: Yeah, you know, I'm trying to make it differential for mucinous societies. I <laughs> no, don't I've seen approximately zero patients <laughs> in societies in my yeah. rear medical career. Four point five liters is a lot. It is a lot.
4: I don't The only time I've heard of mucinous societies is maybe like with a, like a Krunkberg tumor when mm. you have like a bilateral like you know ovarian like malignancy. I think, but other than that, which
5: is not happening in this case, I. <laughs> I have no idea. You, you, you did previously mention a possible source for that. When you're talking about that mass. Yeah. Yeah. Why is this mass so mucousy? <laughs>
4: <laughs> and wh- what does it mean when they say no evidence for malignancy? Good questions. Yeah. It's still acellular, e- but <laughs> no evidence for malignancy. I mean, that's just mean to say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah.
0: Yeah. Walk us through the Kruppenberg tumor, or you, like, what's the thought process with that, or the association? Oof, looks like I have some more to study for step two. <laughs> I,
4: I really just remembered that, you know, you can have this, like, bilateral ovarian, like, epithelial tumor that for some reason just causes lots and lots of mucus to yeah, n-
2: that is what it be deposited, is. yeah.
3: Isn't there some sort of gastric malignancies associated with mucous tumors? You know, like the signet ring says, it is, the cobwebs are coming Mm. off the the material again, but I think there is a connection there. I mean, I don't have much other evidence to support that, but...
1: I mean, I love where your guys' heads are at. I think that you're doing such a good job just kind of working through every little piece of information, and obviously, you know, us presenting this case to you now doesn't really, like, signify what happens in real time, and you guys are both so good about being like, all right, I know that this still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like we have this fibrosis, but it's not cirrhosis. What looks like cirrhosis, but isn't cirrhosis. Like, I feel like not a lot of people have just like a great differential for that off the top of their head, but you're like, okay, well I need to see what does because obviously something's not adding up here. So, and then the way you guys are also talking through, you're like, all right, I know one malignancy can do this. Is there a chance that other malignancies can do this? And so I think that your thought process is great. We have one more aliquot for you before the final diagnosis will be unless anyone else has anything to add.
2: I guess the only thing I'll say is think about the reasons they do peritoneal biopsies Yeah, and you don't have to know the answers. One thing for sure is tuberculosis, which was sort of the classic reason to do peritoneal biopsies. Certainly people can have peritoneal tumors that, that do it, but, but you got, one of you guys mentioned that TB before. So this is a it, clearly at least one thing is it's a rule out TB procedure too.
0: And then if I'm not mistaken, like given the correct exposure history, you could be thinking about, uh,
2: asbestos exposure. Yeah. It's mesothelioma is what you were getting at, which is, I said, that would be a heritial tumor that we would think about.
1: But yeah, no, this is a really tough case. And I think you guys are handling <laughs> that,
2: really <laughs> really
1: that's seen every day.
2: Hey, don't uh, see me sweating right now.
1: Yeah.
5: <laughs> All right. Well, we will move on to our last aliquot before you guys can kind of take a shot at your final diagnosis. So. Outside hospital records were obtained by the M3 from the patient's appendectomy, which was two years prior. By the way, shout out here to M3s, <laughs> We've all done a lot of that. behind the scenes, dirty work they do okay. <laughs> getting those outside hospital records. And so the path the pathology report from this appendectomy showed low grade appendiceal mucinous neoplasm with acute perforated appendicitis. Um, the margins appeared clear. So that. It's kind of our last little tidbit of of information. And so, yeah, I guess knowing this, knowing going back into the records, putting all this together. Thoughts? Well, I hadn't thought about the appendix in an hour or so. (laughs) Yeah.
0: When I first read the case, totally glumped over the appendectomy. And then after getting to the end and then going back, I'm like, wait, why the hell did this guy have an appendectomy at 72? So then it caught, I'm like, wow, I should have thought about this a little bit more, but totally just didn't register it
1: any specific diagnosis coming to mind, or if not, that's totally fine.
4: My appendiceal mucinous neoplasm differential isn't very high (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) But, well, I guess what was nice at the time that the margins were clear, which was cool at the time, I don't know what what that means when they get clear margins, when, you know, they take it out. Does that mean, you know, it could be associated somewhere else? Is there, like, a different... Site where this is also happening is it, you know, back where the appendix is taken out, and they really didn't
3: get clear margins. Yeah, and I, I, again, with Eric, my appendiceal mucinous neoplasm differential is lacking. But the fact that it perforated, and he's having symptoms now later on, whatever was going on, I'm I'm guessing it probably seeded in the peritoneum, and that's kind of where we're seeing the societies come from. Mm-hmm. So I'm going straight up to up to date to brush up on my appendiceal <laughs> neoplasms, but. Generally, I kind of
0: feel like that's the direction I'm headed. I'm glad you Loving said that, it. too, cause that's, like, the reality of the situation is no one's going to know. We need to consult, like, our resources to, you know what you need, you know what you don't know, and you know where you need to go to figure it out, and I think that's perfect.
1: Yeah, I think being able to, like, explain the pathophysiology is so much more important than being able to remember, like, the name of this specific diagnosis, because that's something that you can easily, you know, look up if you have to, but you know, understanding exactly like, okay, how does this appendiceal tumor relate to what's going on now is a lot more complicated. So, yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on top on the head in terms of like the pathophys of everything that's going on. Anything else that you want to add before we reveal the final diagnosis?
2: I'm ready for it. So, yeah, so if there's a name to this that you guys You're are sure will remember yeah. the second it comes up. And uh, so I'm going to ask you to dig through your whatever, here's step one or step two brains, <laughs> and, uh, and, and see if you remember the, the, the term that's associated. It's only like a one in a million. Thank points. God it's a multiple choice test. <laughs> too.
3: yeah. I, I took step two two weeks ago, and I've been actively forgetting everything <laughs> that was on <running. laughs> the
1: So all scary, right. how fast do you forget? I've drawn blanks. Well, all right. Shall we? We shall. All right, you can do the honors.
5: Well, so the final diagnosis is pseudomyxoma peritonei, which I will say, I don't think I would have gotten either, the either. They say those words. So, but super interesting case. You guys essentially got the diagnosis, really. You literally said exactly what it was and even like what caused it. And so this was super interesting. I thought this was like a really cool learning case. Just kind of when I was going over it, I kind of knew bits and pieces about all this stuff, but I've never really put it together like this. And so... And I feel like this is kind of one of those things where if it ever comes up in the future, it's going to make like a lot more sense instead of just reading it over and over. So, yeah, super interesting. I think we got like got to learn a lot different things along the way, kind of just taking up that differential diagnosis from where we started and using all of our labs and imaging. So, yeah, I thought it was super cool. Dr. Abrams, thank you for the case. And. You can, Megan's going to teach us a little bit about the diagnosis, but definitely I, like. I have to say a couple things. I don't, don't really, things. So I right
2: left out some of the very confusing parts of it, <laughs> which w- one of the confusing parts, I don't know, did you cut it out, Kevin? Was that this patient lived in Guatemala and he came to Chicago for his healthcare because he said it was cheaper for him to come here than to get his care in Guatemala. So he had lived here for many years and he, for some reason, had insurance here. And he said, whenever I go to the hospital in Guatemala, I have to pay $2,000. It's cheaper for me to fly in a plane to Chicago, which he did, and then went from the airport to the hospital. I just think it's not a good sign for Guatemala. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually, I had a interesting
5: uh, patient when I was at, when I was at uh, Cook County Hospital for my IM rotation. He had malaria. Turned out to be like really rare cerebral malaria. Yeah. And they, his family actually took him on a plane from. I forgot what his home country was. His
2: family took a big chance by putting him on the plane. Yeah, with cerebral malaria, exactly, <laughs> and uh, booked him over to the United States for uh, for health care. So, <laughs> so there think. was all this. He's from Guatemala, circling around this. Oh, which would have you know, made it much more confusing. Were you going down the TB path pretty strongly? I think that's why I had the pericardial biopsy. But if you would, if you'd seen this guy and you. Now, and I've never, I, and maybe I have, like you said, with the Krukenberg tumor, because I'd never seen it as a appendiceal tumor. You would have said, There's not too many. I, I always just had this picture of them sucking jello out of his belly <laughs> because that's what it seemed like. Oh, I was reading on that today. This is actually called Jelly Bell. Yeah, it's called <laughs> Jelly Bell. I didn't know that. And, and there clearly are not that many things that cause it. And so. Right at the beginning, everybody thought it was the appendix. And the, the great thing in my mind was that it was actually proven because they the, the biopsy was somewhere else. They, the, 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 they literally called, they got the name of the doctor, and then they had to call all the hospitals that the doctor operated at.
1: Was this in uh, Guatemalan?
2: No, this is, he had, he had his appendix taken out here. What do you have? Another I, I, one of his sort of trips up here. <laughs> and so they called around to a bunch of hospitals until they found the pathology report from the appendectomy. Wow. Oh, down mm. to the M3 again. Yeah. We're basically solving
3: this case. <laughs> no, this is an interesting case. I didn't know the association with the appendiceal tumors. I thought it was just the ovarian ones. So very cool. Yeah, awesome.
1: A couple teaching points, pseudomyxoma peritonei is a a condition um, where there's large amounts of fixed mucus in the peritoneal cavity, so that in and of itself isn't like actually like a diagnosis. It's just telling you that there's mucus in there and you kind of need to figure out like what the underlying condition is. So more of a radiologic term, but frequently arises from appendiceal mucinous tumors. And then also like we were talking about the ovarian tumors. And so just in terms of classifying appendiceal tumors, so they can be classified histologically. You can have a mucocele which are non-neoplastic or for neoplastic, you can have either high grade or low grade appendiceal mucinous neoplasms and then invasive adenocarcinoma, mm. which is pretty rare. And so pathophysiology wise, you guys kind of Covered this already, but you have this ruptured cystadenoma of the appendix, and then you have all this mucus that had accumulated in there that seeds the peritoneum. And so those cells proliferate and continue to yeah. produce. So, management wise, for asymptomatic patients with limited peritoneal disease who underwent restriction, they can be monitored pretty closely, which I'm assuming was kind of the case for him. And we'll have to ask Dr. Abrams. I'm not sure if he was just kind of lost to follow up or what happened kind of in the interim where he was able to develop this leucinous ascites. And then in terms of more aggressive treatment, so they do like intraperitoneal chemotherapy is kind of like the mainstay in aggressive cytoreduction. So they're kind of actually operating on the peritoneum to try to remove as much of it as they can and then using this intraperitoneal chemo with the goal of cure since you really don't spread outside of the peritoneum, but it does kind of like get deeper into the peritoneum that sometimes it's hard for the chemo to go, you know, as deep as it needs to to like fully kill all of the cancerous cells, but that's in. Malignant cases. And then just a little bit else, because we were talking about you know, things that kind of mimic cirrhosis but aren't cirrhosis. So I also had to look into this because, like I said, not something that you see every day. So things like chronic Bud Chiari syndrome or basically anything that causes, like, you know, chronic portal vein thrombosis can cause something that looks like cirrhosis but isn't. Pseudomyxoma peritoneia is something that does cause it. It's on the more rare side. And then you can see things like a breast cancer mets to the liver can actually look like cirrhosis. Miliary mets, a sarcoid can. So, there's not a ton of things, but there definitely is kind of, like, a differential for cirrhosis. I think that's all the Titian points I have for today. Kevin, do you have anything to add?
0: I just want to hear your guys' reflections on the case. What are some takeaways? You know,
4: I'm still wondering, why does this guy's liver look the way it does? You know, it's it's funny that it had nothing to, you know, do uh, with the end results, but... Something I would probably, you know, monitor closely and, you know, just move forward. But, you know, I thought it was a lot of fun. Dr. you know, Abrams did a, like a really good job of kind of like making sure that your differential is, you know, still broad in certain
5: areas, but also raining you down in other areas. So that was a, you know, great guiding voice. And Megan and I had the same, when we were talking about this, we had the same thought. It's like, okay, we got the diagnosis, but then... You know we can't tie all these things together and you know this is severe enough to cause varices too so it's definitely like at least the the, the liver aspect of it doesn't like quite have that full explanation so yeah that's interesting that you thought the same thing because megan and i were just talking about that too yeah i think this is a good uh, example of the
3: and illustrates the importance of not anchoring on a certain diagnosis like a big key in this case ended up being the appendix of a guy that no longer had an appendix like taking a step back to kind of look at all the data again with, with fresh eyes and new perspective is kind of the key to coming up with it in this case. So yeah, important to be mindful of that in the future.
1: Yeah, well, I think you guys did absolutely amazing. You tackled every aliquot so well. And it's crazy just to kind of think about how far we've all come since, you know, first year. <laughs> Eric was in my small group um, when we first started med school. So we went way back, but so yeah, it's great to have both of you on here and just kind of talking through everything. It was a lot of fun. So thank you for both being on here. Thanks to Dr. Grzynski and Dr. Abrams. Always a pleasure. And we'll see everyone next time. And And thanks
0: for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.